typically in a negative way, right? Many people will say one of the primary reasons they do not show up in a church is because of all of the hypocrites located within the church. Um, And so it's important that we address Jesus' words here. What is hypocrisy? And when you think of a hypocrite, what typically comes to mind? By definition, it's the two-faced individual, person who lives in two distinct ways. Maybe you think of the individual who says one thing in one context only to turn around and say something quite the opposite in another situation. Maybe, maybe you're thinking of the pastor who comes along and teaches his congregation not to commit sexual immorality, only to be found out that he is having an affair on his wife. In fact, some of you who are here tonight were potentially affected by a situation just like that in this church years ago. Maybe you think of the Catholic priests, been in the headlines as of late, who, who are being exposed for the fact that there is so much molestation taking place within uh, the church. Though they proclaim chastity, they molest little boys. It's disgusting, right? It's, it's the highest level of hypocrisy that you could probably imagine. May, maybe when you think of hypocrisy, you, you think of the girl from your youth group who would ch- show up every week, but you knew behind closed doors she was sleeping with her boyfriend. She had two faces, Maybe you think of the student in your class who's outspoken about believing in Jesus but comes to find out he's the one selling pot to everyone in the classroom. In high school, I was the hypocrite. I was that individual. I was the one showing up to church every week, going to youth group. I went on all the retreats. I showed up on Sundays. I invited friends with me. Um, and yet, I was the one who was showing up on Wednesday night every week high. I was the one who was caught up in sexual immorality. I was the one who was selling pot at school and at the youth group. I lived the life of the hypocrite. I put up the front. And I did so until Christ came in and intervened and changed my heart and helped me to see the wretchedness and destruction of what I was doing. And now my guess is that when you think of the hypocrite, those are the types of people you think of. Well, as you see in Matthew 6, as we'll find out, here in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, hypocrisy is at center stage. This is at the center of the conversation. And yet, what's interesting is that when Jesus talks about hypocrites in the Sermon on the Mount, he's referring to a different type of hypocrisy than what typically comes into our minds. I mean, don't get me wrong. The type of hypocrisy that we just discussed is wretched, right? The, the Catholic priest molesting boys, that is disgusting. The, the pastor cheating on his wife while proclaiming that you ought to live a sexually pure life, that is wrong, and it is hypocrisy. But what Jesus is doing is he's addressing a different type of hypocrisy here. What does he mean when he speaks of hypocrites? Well, as review, Jesus is still aimed at the heart. 
Remember, chapter 5 is all about Jesus directing his attention directly to the heart and calling his people to change their heart, to to make their hearts match their outward actions. And in chapter 6, the same thing is going on. Jesus is continuing to show his disciples how they might fulfill the law from the heart and not just outwardly. The goal is not merely outward obedience. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Uh, Do not retaliate. The goal is inward heart obedience. Do not hate. Do not lust after her. Instead of retaliating, show love to your neighbor. In a large part, Jesus' aim is directed at the scribes and the Pharisees the religious leaders of his day. Remember, they were looking for all sorts of loopholes in God's law so that they could break God's law inwardly without doing so outwardly, without anyone knowing what was actually going on in their heart. So they would tell themselves, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I will lust after your wife. And Jesus is speaking against that type of mindset. You know, this is actually a common theme throughout all of the Gospels. It's not only found in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always addressing this. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's what they were concerned with. They were concerned with putting up the front. They were concerned with outward appearance. They wanted people to look at them and think that they were righteous according to the law. They wanted to be seen as being righteous. They wanted other people to take notice of their appearance. Now as we continue though through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' attention is still on the heart of the law. He's still calling his disciples to obey God from the heart, not merely outwardly. That's his focus still here in chapter 6. But but something changes in chapter 6. This is unique to what we saw in chapter 5. And here's what's going on. In chapter 5, the focus is on resisting negative actions. Hatred, lust, uh, murder, adultery, right? It's it's focused on these negative actions. And Jesus is saying, don't just avoid the negative action outwardly. Avoid the negative action inwardly. But now in chapter 6, the attention is still on the heart, but now he's talking about positive things. Now he's talking about things that people find spiritual pride in. You see, when you pray, yeah, do that, but make sure you have the right heart attitude when you do that. When you, when you fast, do that, but make sure you do that with the right heart attitude. You see, here's what's kind of scary about the Sermon on the Mount. Is that if you do not have the right heart attitude, you are condemned if you do, and you are condemned if you don't. That's Jesus' point. No matter what you do, whether you are doing the right thing, or you are resisting the wrong thing, it does not matter because you are still in the wrong if you do not have the right heart attitude. If you are not seeking to obey God holistically. So, we're in Matthew 6. Let me begin uh, by reading verses 1 through 18, and then we'll move forward from there. So Matthew 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their rewards. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not be like the uh, or, or do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for their father, or for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you've forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, be, uh, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here we see three separate examples of what this type of hypocrisy looks like according to Jesus. First, you you probably know this, Jesus shows that we can give to the needy, we can give to the poor, we can do that in a hypocritical way. Then he says we can pray in a hypocritical way, and he explains what that looks like. And then he says that we can fast as a form of hypocrisy, and he shows us what that can look like. So as we begin to look at these three examples of hypocrisy, we need to make sure that we recognize that Jesus He keeps talking about rewards in these verses. And I think in order to understand what's going on here, we need to address this. I don't know if you noticed that, but but look at verse 1. Right out of the gates, Jesus sets the context for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 1 really serves kind of as a title for this whole section. And there are two specific things we need to see here. First, Jesus is giving a warning not to practice your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Right? Jesus' ultimate concern here is that you are acting out in righteousness for one purpose, to be noticed by other people. You want other people to stand in awe of you. And over and over again, Jesus addresses the inherent hypocrisy of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. 
Jesus is not looking for disciples who are eager to please men. He is looking for disciples who are eager to please God. Okay, so the second component here is what we see just come up over and over again. It's this idea of hypocrisy will leave you without rewards from your heavenly Father. This shows up in verse 2, and then again in verse 4, and then again in verse 5, and 6, and 16, and 18. I mean, at first, this idea of rewards doesn't seem all that central to this passage, but then you start looking at, just look at how many times that word shows up here. It's not a minor factor in this couple of, uh, in this chapter. In reality, it's a major concept at play here. The section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount is all about receiving rewards. So with that said, we have to ask a question. What does Jesus even mean by rewards here? You know, there, there are some debates here, right? There, there are some different understandings of what Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about uh, some sort of reward that comes after salvation? Uh, I receive salvation and then I get a reward on top of that? Or is he talking about salvation itself, the tricky thing here is that sometimes in this, the New Testament, the, the Bible will talk about rewards as, as, a, as a thing that comes after salvation, like maybe a crown or something like that. But then often, it's, it's just conflated with the idea of eternal salvation. So what's going on here? In this context, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is talking about receiving the kingdom of God. So if you are living for the praise of man, Jesus is saying you won't inherit the kingdom of God. We, we really get that when we consider what Jesus already said in chapter 5. Remember, he says, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now he's talking about your righteousness, the type of righteousness that does surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, if you don't have this type of righteousness, if you act like the hypocrites, if you act like the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't get rewarded by your heavenly Father. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if you are living for the praise of men, you will find yourself empty-handed when you stand in front of God. You will not receive eternal rewards. Notice the weight of this. Notice the weight of what Jesus is saying. If your life is, is lived for praise and approval coming from other people, Jesus is saying that proves you are like the hypocrites. And you will not inherit eternal God, uh, and the kingdom of God. If you are living for the praises of men, you will not inherit heaven. Why not? Because it demonstrates your heart is more concerned with being glorified by others than glorifying God. You're at the center of your story, not God, if you're living for the praise of others. So we need to take Jesus' words here seriously. They are shocking. That's for sure. And that does heighten the significance of this passage. So as we go through these three examples, I would just encourage you to do some sincere heart searching on your own heart. Look into your thoughts and look into your motives and do some searching of what's going on inside of you. So the first example we see here 
is the example of practicing your righteousness for earthly rewards. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sounds no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is addressing the ways in which we give. Give to the needy. Give to the poor. This is a passage that is addressing the motive, the heart motive behind your giving. In other words, Jesus is asking, why is it that you give? Why do you give to the poor? Now, here's what we we do need to be careful with. Jesus is not necessarily saying here that it is sinful or it is a problem if someone finds out that you gave to the poor. Right? That's not a sin if someone just finds out that you gave your money to someone in need. Right? You, you may have heard of individuals who, who are honored for their giving. Like, for example, you'll hear about this. Someone gives money to uh, a, a church and then the church recognizes the the individual for giving. Maybe there's a charity, and that charity will honor a donor for giving. There are often like scholarships, even at Christian schools, that are named after people who gave a lot of money so that that scholarship could even exist, right? And that's not necessarily wrong, right? It's not wrong that that school knew that that guy gave that money and then named a, a scholarship after that individual, right? That's not necessarily wrong. And we should be careful to like ridicule people who have buildings named after them because they gave a lot of money to a building fund, right? We need to be careful with that. That's not the issue here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is the motive. Verse 2, look at verse 2. There's this little phrase. They give that they may be praised by others. They give in order that. They might be praised by others. They give with this purpose so that other people might see what they're doing and then praise them. That's why they're doing it. They're doing it for the praise of others. Now remember back to chapter 5 verse 16. Jesus is speaking about good works and he says, Let your light shine that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So here Jesus is saying your good works should go out and people can see those and they actually glorify your Father for those. But notice the intention there. You do good works so that the Father might be glorified. What do the hypocrites do? They do good works that they might be glorified. Right? Their light is not shining at the Father. Their light is, is shining at themselves. They want other people to see them. They want to see what they are doing. So you'll hear about people in the church who will give money to the church with stipulations on it. Right? It's like a bargaining power. I want to make sure that you do with my money what I want you to do. Right? And it's this, this bargain. You'll hear about people who make uh, bargains uh, to the church and they'll say, I'll give you this money as long as you fire the youth pastor over there, because I really don't like that guy. I don't like what he said to my granddaughter, right? You'll hear this sort of thing. Like, this is actually a thing. 
your giving cannot be a bargaining tool, right? It's all about the motive. Our giving can't be a mechanism for pride. Our giving cannot be for the purpose of bringing attention to ourselves, right? We aren't taking the light that is supposed to be shining on the Father and and allowing the Father to receive glory and turning that spotlight back on ourselves, right? Our giving ought to be motivated by thankfulness, We ought to give because we are thankful for the free gift of the gospel. We're thankful for what God has given to us. And therefore we give out of that motive. Right? God has graciously given us the gift of salvation at the costliest of prices by giving us his son. And therefore we ought to, to give freely so that other people might know that gift that God has given Our good works ought to be motivated by a desire to make God's salvation known to the nations. We want to make him known. We want to make what he has given, his gift, we want to make that gift known. And so we give hoping that other people will see our good works and bring glory to the Father, not to us. Well, as we continue here into the next section of our passage, we see another example of hypocrisy in verses 5 through 15. Here we see that you can pray in a hypocritical way. And if you notice, just just take a look at your Bibles and and notice that this, of the three examples, this is by far the longest. This is is a a long example. This is the longest of the illustrations. Many people will say that this is actually the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that the Sermon on the Mount's climax is found in verses 9 through 13. The, ser- the, 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 uh, the prayer, right? The, the heavenly, the, what is it called? I'm blanking. <laughs> the, the, what was that? Lord's Prayer. Yes, yes, Lord's Prayer. So many people will say that's the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, this is the longest section, and it, it's all leading to the pinnacle of the sermon, the Lord's Prayer. Um, but just so you know, we're actually going to spend next week, the entire week, going through the Lord's Prayer. So tonight, we're just going to actually kind of glance over it. We're not going to hit it tonight because we're going to spend the entire week there ne- next Tuesday. Tonight, instead, what we're looking at are these two types of, of prayers that we ought to avoid. Because before Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, he gives two different types of prayers that we need to avoid as Jesus' disciples. So look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do for They think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So, here we see these two types of prayers we need to avoid. The prayers of the hypocrites, the prayers of the Gentiles. And uh, before we begin to look at those, I just want to say again, the issue here is not that you are seen while you are praying. 
That's not Jesus' primary concern. He's not primarily concerned that you pray and other people see it. Right? You're not condemned for praying at a public location. Like you're at, you know, a, out to dinner with your family and you pray before a meal. The waiter walks up and it's like, oh, you're condemned now. Someone saw you praying. No, that's not what he's getting at. He's not saying that when we pray here on a Tuesday night before we start that that's somehow sinful. He's not saying that when you show up at a prayer meeting and you begin to pray in that sort of public location that that's, that's sin, right? That You're condemned. You're just like the hypocrites for doing that. No. Again, the focus is on the motive. Verse 5. They pray and you see the same purpose statement. That they may be seen by others. So that same purpose statement comes up again here. They are praying with one eye open. Keeping track of who's watching. They are praying in hopes that other people will see what they are doing and glorify them. They are praying, hoping that other people will hear their prayers and stand in amazement. The temptation here is to pray, not out of dependence on God, but out of dependence on what other people think about you. That's the temptation here. The temptation is is to pray, not as a declaration that you are remarkably dependent on God, but to pray with the hope that other people will look at you and stand in awe. Notice that Jesus does not stop here, though. He doesn't only criticize the hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees. He goes on to also offer a critique of the way the Gentiles pray. The Gentiles, he says, they pretty much believe that they need to impress God in order to be heard. They need to charm him with their words. They need to make sure that they are saying the right words in the right order in order for God to turn his ear to listen. You know, our prayers ought to look radically different. Jesus says, pray in secret. Jesus says, pray with simplicity. You don't need to imitate the hypocrites. You don't need to imitate the Gentiles. Right? Praying in secret, this is what Jesus calls us to do, it, it demonstrates faith. Right? If you are willing to go into a dark room by yourself and talk to God, to mutter to God by yourself, without anyone watching or anyone listening, that demonstrates that you actually believe what you are doing. If you're willing to to go into a room and close the door by yourself, that demonstrates, first off, it demonstrates to the world, they think you're crazy, but it also demonstrates that you actually believe that God is listening because you're willing to do that. If you're willing to take time out of your day to talk to God in private, then that shows you actually are dependent on God. The world might think you're out of your mind. The world might think, why in the world would you do that? You look like you're insane. You're talking to yourself. You're talking to the air. What are you actually doing in there, right? You're weird. You're a Christian. Christians are weird, right? That's what they're saying. What in the world are you trying to accomplish? And yet, as Christians, we know that's actually a demonstration of what sincere faith looks like. Sincere faith goes into the dark darkness of a room with no one around, no one listening, and prays, trusting that God will listen. 
Jesus also says to pray with simplicity. Right? Play, pray in such a way that you are demonstrating your simple trust that God is listening. When you think about it, when you try to pray in such a way that you're trying to charm God with your words, what you're actually demonstrating is that your trust is not in God, your trust is in yourself. If you think that you're the one who has to catch God's ear, you're actually demonstrating that you're just trusting in your words. You're trusting in some sort of formula. We must not think that our words get God's attention. We cannot think that our prayers are the means by which we gain God's favor and His gaze to look at us. That's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Right? God knows what you need before you even open your mouth. He knows what you need before that thought even entered into your mind. Our prayers are are not meant to manipulate God or to catch His attention. Our prayers are simply meant to show our faith and dependence on God. We can pray in simplicity knowing that He hears us. We can pray in the quiet of our closet knowing that He is listening. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Think about it. That is the beauty of a gospel. That's a a portrait of the gospel. We can rest assured that God is at work even when we don't have sophisticated words to bring to him. Even when our words are simple, even when our words are imperfect, God is still working on our behalf. It doesn't take any sort of, of manipulation. It doesn't take any sort of rhyme or reason to our sentences in order to catch God's ear. No, He is acting, irregardless of our weakness. He is acting even when our words are simple. He is acting even when we bring nothing to the table. And so Jesus shows us how we ought to pray in the Lord's Prayer. As I mentioned, we're actually going to spend all of next week going through the Lord's Prayer and in fact, kind of fun fact, if you were there last night at the Q&A for uh, Phil Ward and, and Heather, Phil and Heather Ward, uh, you found out that actually our next campaign in January and February is actually going to be on the Lord's Prayer. Six weeks on the Lord's Prayer. So uh, we have plenty to hear from Jesus here um, in the Lord's Prayer, but we're not going to do that tonight. Let's wait until next week and wait until February. Okay. So chapter 6 verses 16 to 18. Here is the final example of hypocrisy that Christ gives us. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is another example meant to explain that we are to live out our righteousness in a specific way. This is another example that we ought to resist the temptation of spiritual hypocrisy and spiritual pride. And here the example is that of fasting. So before we even jump into this example, um, maybe you don't even know what fasting is, right? This is just kind of brought up. He doesn't really explain what fasting is here. So really quick, let's, let's understand what he's talking about here. Primarily, when you read through the scriptures, the idea of fasting is to abstain from food for a certain period of time 
in order to devote yourselves to prayer and worship. And so when you read about fasting in the pages of Scripture, usually it refers to an individual avoiding food altogether for some duration of time. Sometimes people even avoid water. We read about this in the book of Esther. We even read about this in Jesus' fasting in the wilderness. He avoids both food and water. Sometimes uh, the fast consists of individuals just simply limiting their, their diet. So when we read about in Daniel, they basically limit themselves to vegetables. Daniel and his friends, they do this for uh, an extended period of time. All of these are types of fasts. Uh, but ultimately, what Jesus is, is talking about here is the fact that you had the hypocrites, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were fasting in open And they wanted to be seen by others. They were fasting for the wrong reasons. They were fasting not to devote themselves to worship, not to devote themselves to prayer. They were fasting in order to be seen. And we see this purpose statement show up again in verse 16. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They make sure that their fasting is obvious. They make sure other people know what they're doing. They want other people to know the pain they're in. And Jesus is saying that sort of fasting is wrong. Fasting ought to be done in private. You need to clean up your face. You need to look presentable. Don't attract attention to yourself. I mean, this doesn't mean, again, I'm just going to point this out, this doesn't mean, yet again, that people cannot find out that we're fasting. Right? I mean, imagine you're sitting with your friend, they offer you lunch, right? Let me buy you lunch. And you, you're fasting, you're wondering, okay, how do I answer them? And you go like all John 4 on them and you, like Jesus, say, I have food that you do not know of to do the will of God, right? Like that, that's not necessary. Um, it's kind of weird, right? Uh, you know, that, that's not what we are called to do. Uh, in fact, we can tell that person, you're, you can tell that person you're fasting. Like that's okay, uh, it, it's not the end of the world. In fact, it might actually turn into a good conversation because now you're telling this person you're fasting. Now you have an opportunity to explain why you're fasting. And most people in our culture don't fast on a regular basis. And so it's actually kind of an interesting conversation point. Uh, what Jesus is speaking against here is fasting in such a way that you're, you're walking around with a limp, you're holding your stomach, you're, you're talking about how hungry you are all day. Just because you want other people to ask you, like, why are you so hungry? Oh, yeah, I've been fasting. They're like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. Why would you do that? You know, like in our culture, people are like, that's just strange. Like, why wouldn't you eat? You know, and so here what he's getting at is that these people are fasting with this same purpose. They want other people to see them. They want other people to look at their spirituality and, and look at them and be impressed. Right? They're turning the light back on themselves. Remember, our good works are to function as salt and light. Our good works are intended to point people to God and to shine the spotlight on His grace, to glorify God. But our issue is that we often fall to the temptation to take that spotlight and turn it back on ourselves. Look at what I'm doing. Look how spiritual I am. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at my gifts. Look at at the things I have done for God. We want people to praise us instead of seeing our good works and praising our God and Father who is in heaven. And this is where the gospel comes in and offers us help yet again. 
the gospel is a constant reminder that you should not attract anyone to yourself because you have nothing to offer them. Right? Why would you be turning the spotlight on yourself? You don't bring anything to the table. We come to God empty-handed and yet leave full because of God. We come to God with, with sin and yet we receive the bounty of His perfection and His righteousness. Why would you shine the spotlight on yourself? We come to God empty and hungry and we leave fully satisfied. That's who we need to turn our attention to. That's who we ought to be directing people's gaze towards, not ourselves. Right? We come to the table... And so instead of asking people to come to us and and, and get what we cannot offer, let's bring them to the table and say, hey, I'm empty-handed here. You want to sit next to me and receive from him? That's what we get to do. We have nothing to offer. So instead of practicing our righteousness with the intention of pointing all of the attention back on ourselves, let us turn our attention, let us turn others' attention to God. Because he has salvation at his right hand and he does bring that to the table. And he's willing to offer it freely. Now, as we close, I think there's a lot of helpful insight for us to, to gather here. Especially related to how we, we run our ministries here at Golden Hill. So I want to get really practical And just let you know, here is how many of the the ministries at Golden Hills function. And much of the way these ministries function is based off what we find here. This is more specifically, I I actually want to spend some time talking about how ministries here at Kairos function too. So first off, I want to point out that um, upfront ministry is, is dangerous. There's an inherent danger to upfront ministry. Any sort of leadership where you're in front of people can bring the, the danger and the temptation of spiritual pride. It's easy for anyone to come in front of other people and, and bring forth some sort of upfront ministry uh, and for that, that ministry to carry along with it the temptation to pr- behave just like the hypocrites that we just read about. So instead of serving Christ in order to glorify God, we often, when we are given some sort of position to stand in front of people, uh, we get the temptation to glorify ourselves. That's the temptation here. We want other people to see our spirituality and stand in awe. Whether it's singing on a stage in front of people, whether it's leading a ministry, whether it's uh, leading a, 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 a small group, whether it's praying in some sort of public setting, there's always this temptation to behave just like these spiritual hypocrites Jesus is condemning here. And for that reason, many healthy churches, including ours, are very slow to appoint people to leadership positions, especially positions where there's upfront leadership for other people to see. It's, it's a desire to, to use prudence and wisdom here. Right? We are not going to appoint someone in our church to lead a small group unless that person is known and trusted for fear that that person might have the wrong intentions. They might have the wrong motives. Our church is not going to appoint someone to the elder board or to appoint a pastor unless that person has been vetted and thoroughly known. 
our worship pastor at our church, David Morgan, he's not going to invite someone up on, onto the stage on a Sunday morning to sing a song unless he knows that person and knows what is going on in their heart to the best of his ability. Right? He can't know that person perfectly, but he, he wants there to be some sort of trust that this person's not just getting up there to have a show. Let me perform in front of everyone so that everyone can see what I'm doing. And we try to do the same thing here at Kairos. Quite honestly, I want to know that you're willing to prove yourself to be faithful in little things before we're going to give you responsibilities in upfront, open-air ministries where other people see your face. Right? You need to demonstrate that you are willing to show up and work behind the scenes in ministries where people don't see you in order to be placed on the leadership team or the worship team. So if people ask to come onto the, the worship team, we're typically uh, going to tell them, hey, why don't you serve in the prayer team? Because no one's going to see what you're doing there, and uh, you aren't going to get noticed for it. And let's see whether you can be faithful in that ministry behind the scenes that no one knows about before you come in and lead everyone in worship. And that's typically the way things work. We're going to ask you to come and, and join the setup team. Show up an hour early Show that you're faithful by setting this room up before anyone's really here. Improve your faithfulness there before you are on a position where you're seen by other people. And my hope is to see you prove that you're willing to do that. I want to see you prove that you're willing to, to do ministry in a way where your right hand does not know what your left hand is doing. Or vice versa. I, I want to see that before you are placed in some... Uh, form of upfront ministry that you are an example of maturity. Uh, to be honest, I'm worried about some people that they just want to be seen. Uh, they w- they want to be on the worship team because they want other people to gawk at their voice. Like, oh my gosh, they have such a beautiful voice. They're so talented. Uh, I- I'm worried about some people who want to teach a small group or, or preach uh, that they just want people to see how, how much they know about the Bible. I'm worried about people who who want to to be on the leadership team because in reality the the fact is they just want other people to look at them as though they have some sort of authority or something right that's what I'm worried about I want to see people prove themselves to be faithful in little things and that's this isn't just me this is the way Golden Hills operates at large uh, we want to see that happen before we ask you to serve in some sort of upfront out there ministry um, and I, I'm hoping that by doing that, it actually helps you and it protects the ministry. You see, we want to help you by telling you, let's pump the brakes. Let's actually hold up on that. That's actually helpful to you because it gives you the opportunity to evaluate what's going on in your heart. It gives you the opportunity to practice serving in a humble ministry by showing up before anyone sees what you're doing and helping on the setup team. Right? That gives you an opportunity to practice humility. By telling you to wait, we are helping you because we give you time to evaluate what's going on in your motives. Give you the opportunity to consider your heart and ask yourself the question, why do I want to serve in this ministry in the first place? Now, this is more serious, but the next reason that uh, we want to make sure that uh, you're vetted, if you will, is because I want to make sure that I am doing my best to protect this ministry. Uh, In Acts 20, 
This is a very serious passage. In Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he looks at the Ephesian elders, and he says, protect the flock. In reality, some of you are going to turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. He's talking to the pastors of that church. He's talking to the elders of that church, and he's saying, some of you are going to lead the flock astray. If Paul was worried about the pastors and elders of that church turning out to be wolves, we ought to be worried about people in our midst doing the same thing. And so we need to be hesitant before we place people in significant areas of leadership um, because who knows? That person might turn out to be someone who's not actually in love with Jesus. That person might turn out to be someone with their own agenda. Uh, I've been around the church long enough to know that some people want to serve in ministry opportunities for the wrong reasons. And some of those people end up uh, turning out to be wolves, quite frankly. I've seen this multiple times in my short few, uh, I've been a Christian for 12 years, right? And I've seen this happen multiple times. You have someone who's charismatic, someone who's likable, someone who's talented come up and end up leading people astray because they don't actually love Christ. They're in it for the wrong reasons. Their motives are not correct. And so I want to actually add here that to the best of my understanding, Uh, the people who are on the leadership team right now, the people who are serving on the worship team, the people who are in public ministry right now are there in those positions for the right reasons, right? I cannot read minds. I am limited in my ability to read people, but I do believe that the people who are in those leadership positions are there with the right motives. They're there to not bring attention to themselves. They're there to point you all to Christ. And that's the goal of the gospel, That's the goal of of doing any sort of ministry. The message of Christ is that we would turn the light of the gospel away from ourselves and on to Jesus because he is the only one who is able to save. He is the only one who is able to offer salvation. So with that said, let me close our evening just by praying in a public ministry. And I think we can all agree this isn't sin, right? This is actually good. Um, Father, we come to you humbled and thankful for your word and for the fact that it speaks so uh, keenly to the heart. God, you direct your attention to our hearts to make sure that we're not just putting up a front outwardly, but we are seeking to obey you inwardly and internally. Lord, help us to do this uh, through your spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name.